And every, every year we go through this little rite of passage, the passage of time, that is, until it's over. The ritual of deconstructing and reconstructing the Trinity, ending up with at least a working model. This is the only Sunday that the lectionary sets aside for a, and I quote, non-narrative doctrine of the Christian faith. Think about it. Where the texts are assembled to fit the concept, a preacher's dream, and not the other way around. But the Trinity is no preacher's dream, I assure you. Non-narrative doctrine, indeed. The texts are fine. I'll deal with John. Of justification by faith, much can and will be said, but not today. Likewise, the path with which that feminine personification of wisdom, Sophia or Chokmah or Lady Wisdom, has set out through the Old Testament to the New Testament with lots in between. I have much to say about that, and it will wait until better times. And we will have time today because Trinity, as you see on your bulletin cover, is not just a Sunday, it's a season. And it will take more than a season to make us Trinitarians. And being a Trinitarian, as my teacher Gordon Fee said, is just another word for being a Christian. How do we get there? We start with the Father. And that's about as far as many of us get, especially if we are from the Reformed tradition. So we are Unitarians, but not the Universalist kind. No, thank you. Evangelicals add the Son, mainly by way of St. Paul, so they are binitarians. Charismatics get the Spirit. They are, in fact, the true Trinitarians. Fullness of Spirit added to the other two, slain in the Spirit, and the baptism in the Spirit, all important for telling a real Christian from a wannabe. So what is a Trinitarian? It's one who has the Spirit. So those of us who started Reformed and then went in for a significant surrender to the Spirit are fine. Thank you. Now, there is nothing wrong with fullness of Spirit, of course. But to be filled with anything, you have to be emptied of everything else. Maybe the human spirit. And that's hard. I play now with two words. Aspiration and inspiration. Both have to do with drawing breath. In inspiration, drawing in, holding it indefinitely. In aspiration, in and out. The human spirit, aspiration, is a matter of the closed world of culture and the noblest dreams and hopes that we can caught together to govern us. It's the same stale air breathed in and out and the oxygen runs out. We sicken and our dreams become more and more confused. Inspiration is the infusion of God's oxygen into this greenhouse, breaking the glass ceilings and letting God's no, God's noblest ideals, expressed in his vocation to each of us, to get into where we live. We need to keep aspirations and inspirations separate critically as best we can. That is critical to the journey of Christians. But in real life, aspirations and inspirations tend to get hopelessly entangled. God's invitations can get corrupted and invariably do by human initiatives. But so, on the other hand, can the human imagination be leavened and redeemed by the divine? 
suddenly taking flight on eagle's wings, plucked from the ladder of success, which is the sure sign of human aspirations at work, and carried aloft by God's talons. This happens all the time in the great works of art and in the countless everyday interactions of human beings in every sphere of culture. The spirit is generous, audacious, gracious, and often surreptitious in invading the enemy camp and subverting our scheming with the element of surprise. As St. Paul will say at the end of Philippians 4, wherever there is anything of value, of edification, of beauty, we are sure that the spirit has been there and the spirit gets around. Whenever we talk of inspiration then, whenever we talk of inspiration anywhere, we talk of the spirit And whenever we affirm human aspirations, we speak of the human spirit. They can work together, and they can get in one another's way. If fullness of spirit is what they get in the upper room, the spirit comes only into an empty room within. You cannot fill what is full already. And what is in that upper room, as the disciples wait? Poverty of spirit is what we call it. It's what the disciples have, poverty And we need lots of it, because poverty of spirit is not a characteristic of either this culture, God help us, or this church. Human aspirations go in for fullness. They puff up, inflate, go for grandiosity. Humans build ladders to the sky, stairways to heaven. The holy, however, brings us again and again back down to earth. God's spirit descends, the spirit like the sun coming to meet us where we are. We cannot fill, then, what is full of itself. We have to stop talking and listen. Empty ourselves, be humbled if necessary. It's the best way of finding humility that I know. God does that as the stepladders fall and the staircases end in nothing, the fields of dreams turn into nightmares, and the mud-brick temples dissolve into mud. And... Silenced in the silence of our own battered pride and bruised egos, we learn to lessen less for what we want to hear, more to listen for what God wants us to hear. We learn by, that by experience and by the Bible, by the text, which shows us what it looks like when God speaks and people listen, and what it looks like when they don't. And most of the time in the Bible, they don't. When the spirit of truth comes, he says, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare it to you. This is the whole Johannine move of the farewell discourse, especially. When God the Father speaks, the Son listens. And it's the spirit who makes sure that we hear about it, too that we know what's going on, that it's understood that the intention, the meaning behind the Father's words comes through to us. What God intends, what God wants to happen, after all, God speaks into being. But when God speaks into anything into being through us, it's always the Spirit who gets and gives the message. We Christians are rather proactive in reading the messages into the text and not waiting for God to breathe them to us. That's the job of culture, of course. And when God communicates, the Spirit speaks, getting our attention not just to enhance what we know of him in his heavens, 
but to get us going on what he wants to do in his world, what he wants to get done with what matters, which is what needs to be done. The Spirit motivates, moves us then, inspires us to do anything and at all of the things of God in our lives. The Spirit very actively inspires us, and he inspires who he wants at a time and place of his choosing, even those who might not want the Spirit meddling in their lives if they knew who it was that was getting involved, and that would be most of us most of the time. But they do know Inasmuch as the Spirit takes something of what they are doing and captures, captivates them with his will, his vision of what they could be doing, which is so much better than they imagined and so very, very different. And the marks that are made in the sand that differentiate the Christian's relationship to the Spirit and the non-Christian the possibility of a conscious aspect to the collaboration which indeed transcends. Not that we will ever have the Spirit under our control, try as we will, but we have the possibility of placing ourselves under the Spirit's control. And that's a significant difference, and it means everything to us. We can cooperate if we choose. The Spirit will always have more to say to each and every one of us, not just about how we run our lives, but about what God has to say and what Scripture has to speak into them. And without the Spirit, we hear nothing from God, and the text remains susceptible to devices and desires all our own. Just because we've got hold of the Bible does not, does not, does not mean the Bible has got hold of us And what a difference there is. And that's what we do want, for the Spirit to take possession of us through the text, not just breezing through for an hour or an afternoon, but there, ready at the ready to sustain us in everything, no matter how great or how small. So, Trinity Sunday, it's the beginning. We've got from now to November to work it through a little, and I pray we do. And before I let you go, I acquiesce that this is also Father's Day. It's not in the lectionary, but I am occasionally encouraged to give it a nod. And if the inspiration behind Trinity Sunday is to save souls, the aspiration behind Father's Day is to sell stuff. Do we need to leave it at that as the church? Toss it aside and wash our hands as a bad business? No. That's not how the Spirit works. But let's pray the Spirit of God will leaven our human experience of fatherhood with the spiritual experience of the fatherhood of God. He who no one has ever seen, seen perfectly in Jesus as servant, not as tyrant. May we be led to let the inspiration of that same Spirit burn away the thick, varnish of human aspirations which obscure those biblical texts from us again and again and allow us to read them in such a way as to hear the Spirit speak, maybe for the first time, and see them anew. Pray that we can work on that, and maybe through the Spirit begin to see fathers more like the Son, as the Father intends, and as the Spirit attends. Amen.